It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Optusport Football Podcast. This week I was joined by Michael Bridges and Julian Laron to pay respect to the late Terry Venables. We ask if it's all falling apart for Ange Postacoglu at Spurs and has Sergio Ramos missed more games suspended than Bridgie played in his whole career. I'm Mark Schwarzer, and we've got all that and more on the Optusport Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Optusport Football Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Phil Kittramilis. No, I'm not. He's, for some reason, decided that he's going to plan a flight back home from England to Spain. I mean, well, I suppose we're probably doing this podcast for the very first time at this time of the day anyway, but we are joined by former Leeds United striker, Michael Bridges, and European football expert, Julian Laurent. Well, I've got to start. First and foremost, say welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, let's not mention Phil anymore. Actually, we will hear from him later on in the podcast, so we're going to have to talk about him. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with Ganacho's overhead scissor kick at Goodison. Was it, I'm going to say, was it the best overhead scissor kick you've ever seen at a top, top level, Julian? Wow, that's a good question. I mean, my favourite would always be the Cristiano Ronaldo one. Uh, if you remember against Atletico Madrid with Juventus, the hat-trick in the Champions League as well. It's just, I guess there's different style in, remember the Gareth Bale one as well in the Champions League final, which could be a favourite for a lot of people. This one is very similar to the Wayne Rooney one in the... Uh, Obviously, in the derby back in 2011, if you remember, against City. So, I guess there's, there's all sorts of different... Back in when I was a kid at PSG, we had uh, Amara Simba, uh, the striker. who This used to be his trademark. He sometimes used to chase the ball up on purpose to do the overhead kick himself. So, uh, I grew up watching Amara Simba doing some pretty good ones. But, but Garnacho was, was, was very, very special. Bridget? Yeah, I've got to agree with there, Jules. Garnacho is absolutely outstanding. And it was very reminiscent of the Wayne Rooney one at Old Trafford. I think that the, the technique with Nachos is, is, is better than the Rooney one because he's got to take two steps away from goal to get himself set. But Jules, I thought you were going to mention every overhead kick in the world that has ever been done there because I've specifically <laughs> picked one out and you didn't mention it. And it stands in my stands up there for me because I played against this guy for Leeds United in the Champions League against Barcelona in 99-2000. However, the year after, yes, I know 2001 against Valencia, Barcelona, this guy who absolutely destroyed us called Rivaldo, he scored one of the greatest yeah. scissor kicks I've ever seen on the edge of the box. He chested up, like you said, he does the scissor kick against Valencia. That was for his hat-trick. And not only that, I think it was the importance of the game to actually get Barcelona to qualify for the Champions League ahead of Valencia, That's who right. were playing. It was like the £50 million goal. So um, for that reason... Yeah. I'm saying I'm sticking with Rivaldo, but no doubt about it, Ganacho's is definitely up there. It's world class, but um, for me, it was definitely Rivaldo. Bridgie, I spent my night looking for yours, for, for one of your... I could not find anything. I mean, maybe no. maybe YouTube didn't exist at the time or something. Or you were not that kind of striker, maybe. Well, no, Julian, <laughs> I was that kind of striker. I did actually try it in a game and I ended up being injured for two years, mate. So there you go. It's, um, that was definitely <laughs> not in my repertoire. I had a different technique to that. <laughs> 
Did you ever, did you ever pull a miracle one off at training, Bridgie? You know that all the lads. I mean, you you would have seen them all in training against you, shooting practices. The lads we used to love doing, obviously a little bit of crossing for the heads or to touch volleys. And the amount of times we would try scissor kicks like that, I reckon Swartzy, I would have tried about five hundred plus in my career behind closed doors, and I reckon I might have nailed one. So that just shows how impressive this is. And I've seen it. I tell you what, I bet yeah. you've seen a few injuries as well when people have tried it, eh? <laughs> I have to tell you what, like, yeah, I've seen lots of players try that training. Um, in a team, have I played in a team where someone's actually scored an overhead scissor like that? Probably, but I just can't, nothing really stands out. But Julian, you mentioned it. The Gareth Bale one in the Champions League final was insane. Cristiano Ronaldo, yeah, Rivaldo. I mean, mm, Rooney. Yeah. The thing is, they're, they're all up there, right? For various reasons. I also think Rooney's one was a higher one, as in the way the ball reached him. And he had yeah. to reach back further than Ganacho's. Ganacho's is a little bit on the side. Does that make it more difficult? Does that make it better? So I, I kind of go the scene setter. What was the biggest occasion to score a goal of that magnitude? Gareth Bale one's pretty big. But then you kind of go, yeah. at what stage of the game was it? And then Wayne Rooney's in a in a in a in a Manchester derby at Old Trafford. That is like. That is sublime. And then Rivaldo in a Champions League game as well. So I don't know. Look, they're all up there. They're all amazing. We're going to put this out on socials anyway, no doubt about it. And we're going to say, pick the best. We've got Julian's, we've got mine, we've got yours, we've got Ganacho's, we've got Rooney. Absolute endless amount. And let's see what the public think. eh? And then they can settle the argument. Yeah, for sure. Should move on now and talk about Terry Venables. Obviously, the late Terry Venables um, and the sad news of his passing. Um, His former Socceroos, he was aged 80. Uh, former Socceroos manager, sorry, and he was aged 80 years old uh, after a long illness, which is obviously very, very sad. I had him at Middlesbrough. Well, I had him in the national team initially, and he never picked me. <laughs> I had one cap, actually. <laughs> and then um, it was a time when the international uh, games weren't aligned with club football. And he he brought me in for one camp, and I just signed for Middlesbrough, and I had to leave the camp early. And he was all on board with it because Brian Robson was a manager at Middlesbrough. Mike Kelly was my goalkeeping coach, and they both worked with him um, when he was with England. So they had a really close relationship with him, and it was all okay. And then from that point onwards, he basically never picked me again. And <laughs> I, what what it was was the second, like the third or fourth game I played for Middlesbrough, we had the return leg of of the cup fi- uh, semi final, and I got permission. Brian Robson, Mike Kelly spoke to Terry Venables, got permission not to not to play in the game, or not sorry, not to go with the national team to play in this massive game for my club. And then two days before, or a day before actually, he rings me, Terry Venables, and says, "You need to make a decision." I went, "What decision?" You know, from my understanding, you've co-cated it with Brian Robson and Mike Kelly. Why am I having to make a decision now? He went, "No, well, no, you just have to make a decision now." And I went, "Well, I've already committed to playing for for Middlesbrough." And he went, "Right, fine," and that was it. Never picked me again. Um, so yeah, that was that, but then he came to Middlesbrough and I had him for six months and he, I was worried. I was really worried when he turned up. I thought this is me gone. There's no way. And he was brilliant. He, he laughed, he, he laughed with me and smiled. We'll we'll have a chat later on. And uh, that was it. And we kind of went on and he was, he was brilliant. He was a fantastic manager to work with. Great coach, really, really good coach on the football pitch. Um, and, uh, obviously a very, very sad loss. Bridget, you've had experiences with him as well, haven't you? 
Yeah, very sad loss, sports like you're saying. I think he's a man that's got a lot of wisdom because if you're not picking you, it shows that he's done his homework and his research and he's a very, very good, technical, <laughs> talented coach. Uh, well, I, I felt really sorry for Terry when he got the Leeds United job. Um, we'd had a, a, a huge run with David O'Leary, um, obviously the, the Premier League and the Champions League. And it was coming to the end of the run and Leeds were just starting to go into a little bit of financial difficulty behind the scenes that none of the players knew about. But what it was, Terry was the manager of the Australian national team and we were we had a pre-season tour. I'll never forget. We went away on pre-season tour to Thailand, China and Australia without a manager. We were meeting the manager over there. And in charge of the club was Eddie Gray and Brian Kidd. And neither of them knew whether they were going to be staying. They hadn't spoken to Terry. Um, and there was no there was no discipline or no organization. So it was like a, the preseason was basically like a, a stag do or a bachelor party because we were karaoke every night. We were the, the training was very limited, and it was it was a real real shame that when we got to see Terry over in Australia um, to become the manager and um, and then come back, I think we were still underdone from that preseason where it had been so disorganised. And well, like you say, actually meeting the guy. The aura that he had about him, I just found was brilliant. He, he was he was a lovely guy to talk to. And I'd been out with a lot of injuries. And he just said, listen, I'm going to try and get you back to what, what I want to see from you. And he used to just do lots of little one-on-ones. He was saying they're technical. And um, the the way he would dissect a game, I thought, was fantastic. Um, and that having worked with David O'Leary for so many years and had success, uh, like a, a lot of good um, upbringing with O'Leary, when I saw Terry and heard what he had, the, the attention to detail, like you could tell he's managing Barcelona in England and that it was on a different level. And I'm just so, I'm so gutted that his time frame was very short and that I was coming back from injury because I would have loved to have had a lot more time with Terry Venables. And like you say, um, I think the news came out, he is absolutely devastated and it's it hit the global news because of the, the man that he was. There's not many people have gone around the world and coached at the clubs that he has. Um, and he's just, like you say, a, a fantastic guy on and off the field. It's a shock, Bridgie. You went on a preseason tour and it was like a stag do and you were very much at the fore of that. And <laughs> I bet you were up on the karaoke machine every night as well. I mean, I mean, it's, it's look, I'm only guessing, but I think it's a pretty good educated guess. Am, am I close to it? Uh, there was a, there was a few that were following in line. Mate. I mean, Robbie Fowler was there, so he, uh, Robbie loves a little bit of it. He's a wild child as well. Don't get don't get us wrong, Michael Dubry. He's another one that used to get the party going. But um, yeah, like I say, sports. When you don't know who's at the helm, you know what lads are like. Well, when when you you're taking you see an inch that you can take, you're going to take as much as you can and maximise. And we were taking yards and metres, mate. So um, yeah, unfortunately, we let ourselves down pre-season for Terry's arrival. I've got to say that. I mean, and th- th- you said how, how well Greg Coach was in England, especially he won the FA Cup with, with Spurs. Uh, he led England in the in the Euro 1996, losing that semi-final against Germany on penalties, of course, which was, you know, which was penalties in the 90s, which was, I think, a lot of the disturbing block for, for England team. But like Bridget was saying, for him to go to Barcelona and be so successful, he won the league in 85 with them. The first season after Maradona left the club, they hadn't won the league for 11 years. When he, so it's not like he would arrive in a Barca team that was already dominant and winning everything in Spain. So it was easy for him. He had to make them win again after such a long period of time for, for a club like that. 11 years without a league title is, is incredible. So he did that and they were really... He charmed them completely. And to go back to what Bridget was saying about the aura and the charisma, this is, this is him a lot. He was, a, he was, he would seduce a room. He could work the room so quickly, so easily as well. I, I met him only once at like an award dinner and you could see the, 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 just the presence that he had, that kind of charisma. And I'm not surprised that in the eighties, nineties, when he was a coach that, 
that transpired really to the players. And it's a shame he lost the 86 European Cup final with Barcelona on penalties as well against, against uh, Stuart Bucharest. So the, the two, maybe the biggest game in his career, really, that final and the semi-final of the Euros with England, to lose them both on penalties, you know, imagine if he had won that, where, where, where that would have taken him after that. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, fantastic coach, fantastic guy. Let him rest in peace, of course. Um, Haaland, he has scored 50 goals in the Premier League. He's the fastest player to do it. He did it in 48 games in Manchester City's 1-1 draw with Liverpool. How impressive is that, Bridgie? Well, I was really surprised. I mean, it is, it's incredibly impressive, but the the team that he is playing in are going to create chances at will under Pep Guardiola, Manchester City. And I think over the year, we've seen, you know, Aguero had a, a massive success with Manchester City. And then they really struggled to find somebody that was going to get on the forefront and get all these goals. You know, Jesus, it never really hit the hit for him. They were trying to get Harry Kane. That didn't materialise. Now they've got Haaland. I mean, he just, he has absolutely everything. He's a defender's nightmare because he's got the physical presence. You can't bully him. He's aerial ability. He's athletic, the pace, and he knows where to find the batting net, Swarty. And it, he's actually probably, you know, I, you know how much I love Harry Kane, Swarty. You know that. Look what he's gone and done the Bundesliga. He, he's shown his class all around. But I think this guy, Haaland, is just, he, he is epitomises everything. Didier Drogba was the the guy that changed English football, I believe, for that we never played with two up front anymore when a lot of teams started saying that you could play with one number nine. Didier Drogba was the the guy that changed the dynamics of football because he was so good at everything. Um, and Haaland, for me, is better because of what he's doing with the goal-scoring turnover in the ratio. And he's in the best possible place. The team that are going to create him what twenty plus chances per game? You're gonna you're gonna get on the end of some of them, and like I say, when it, it, people are saying our oh, city better or worse without Matt, when you are scoring goals like that, I don't care whether the team is good or not. He is just a world class, and obviously the best Premier League striker that we have seen because he's breaking records at will. And yeah, will he go on to break more records? Of course he will if he stays in the league long enough and he doesn't go to Real Madrid or somewhere. But I, I adore him. I love watching him. And like I say, Swartzy, I always remember teaching him everything I know from the players' lounge when he was there with his dad, Alfie. He should just hit the ball against the wall and say, <laughs> there you go, Erland. Just keep doing this. And one day you might wear the Leeds United shirt. There you go. <laughs> See, in the players' lounge, all I'm thinking about is for you teaching Erland how to drink and how to eat. Probably like a world-class player that's what I would have thought um Julian how do you are you surprised first and foremost of how easily he's he's adopted or adapted to the Premier League I mean we saw him at uh at uh Salzburg Red Bull Salzburg uh, he tore the league up we saw him in, at Dortmund which was impressive how how important and how many goals he scored but now he's at one of the if not the most difficult leagues on the planet and he's making it look easy at times yeah incredible that Capacity, that ability to adapt, you're right, to different football, to different styles of play, to different coaches, of course, because we know that with Pep Guardiola, it usually takes a bit of time for you to get used to the style of football and the, the movement, everything. Uh, but to hit the ground running so quickly like he did was just incredible. Last season, we were all amazed. But there was also part of us saying like, OK, can he do it again? And, and in, in which way? And he already has 14 league goals, I think. Yeah. Like you said, fifteen forty-eight. Andy Cole had the record before of fifteen sixty-five. So not just he beat the record, he just destroyed the record, really. And I looked up at the stats. So he scored us fifteen one hundred and seventy shots, 
in those 170 shots, only 10 came outside of the box. So clearly, like what, for what Bridget was saying, in a team like that, it's obviously easier because the ball is going to come a lot in that box and he makes the, the right runs. He's good in the air. Uh, he, he clearly I, he has an incredible eye for goal and that, that sense of goal of where to be at what time. But he's so clinical. And, uh, and then the confidence goes with it, of course. So incredible. I don't know how long he's going to stay with us in the Premier League and how long he's going to stay at City. Uh, or if at some point he would want to go somewhere else and, and maybe to Spain, for example, or to Italy, whatever. But for now, I think we need to enjoy him because it's an absolute pleasure to watch. Do you, I mean, do you know what it was in Swartzy? I was having a chat with him. I bumped into Alfie at one of the Leeds games recently and I had a chat with him. I just obviously were talking about Erland, having a good laugh about the players' lounge and, and growing up. I was asking him about that, what you said, when he went from you know Salzburg to um, Dortmund into Man City. And his dad was just saying, like, the, the way that they wanted to make sure he was going to go to clubs that were going to suit his style of play. Um, and they said it was obviously going to Man City, you couldn't turn that opportunity down because they're under Pep Guardiola. But going to Dortmund, he, he knew what they were about, the style of play, and they knew it would suit him. So I think that's a that's massive kudos to, obviously, his dad and, and the team that look after him to make sure that his development and the pathway were at the right time in his career. And when they were ready, that was only going to enhance him rather than just seeing the glitz and glamour and going for a big move where a, another manager might not play the style of football that you're, that you're looking for. So again, it's, um, he's, he's been very, very well educated uh, uh, in his, his pathway and his process to get where he is now. Yeah, so just remind you, 50 goals in 48 appearances in the Premier League. He needs to up his game in the national team because he's only scored tw- only scored 27 goals in 29 appearances. So that's just not the <laughs> ratio I'm expecting from Merlin Haaland. Um, let's move on to uh, Doku. Julian, you know him from France. He looks electric. He, he's brought something different. He's actually probably more of a bit more of an old-style winger that mm. we're kind of getting back. And, and he's, he's fantastic to watch. Yeah, that was an amazing... Uh, performance. I think he started because Jack Grealish was obviously not available. I think for now, when Pep wants more control, maybe in 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 the West City play and that kind of performance, maybe Grealish for that is a bit better. Doku is still, like you said, towards he give me the ball and I go, I run at you, I run forward straight away. There's not in terms of control and just you know the tempo of the game or the pace of the game, the rhythm, things like that. He's not he's not there yet. He's not ready yet. However, if that's what you want, if you want him to go at Trent all the time, then you give him the ball. He had 19 touches in the Liverpool box on Saturday. On his own, 19 touches. This is as many as the whole City team. So all the other players, Haaland, Alvarez, Foden, Bernardo, Rodri, all of them, you put them together, Doku has as many as all the others, which was clearly the game plan was to feed him and to let him go at Matip, go at Trent, go at Van Dijk, go and make things happen and Obviously, we saw that sometimes in that end product, he's just not there yet, but he's still a very, very young, young player. But there was a, um, a chat in, 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 in the UK here about, oh, um, does Pep need to change him a little bit to, to make him like Pep ready, kind of a city ready? And I think he's already changed because he had six recoveries of the ball in the game on Saturday. Trust me, when I watched him at Rennes in France, he never really worked defensively. That's not what they asked him to do anyway. So he was about making differences with the ball, creating chances, scoring, etc. But he didn't really have to work defensively. Now he plays Liverpool and he recovers the ball six times. Only Rodri in the City team recovered the ball more 
than Jeremy Doku in the game on Saturday. So for me, Pep has changed him already. It made him aware more of what to do in possession, but also out of possession. And I thought that was a very mature and impressive performance for someone who's still so young and so new in the league. And from a striker's point of view, I've got to say, Doku, I, when I've seen Miss City shirt, there's nothing more. Swartz, you said, he looks like the old school. He takes players on, he gets the byline. He's, he, he's not scared to go inside or outside. I absolutely would be thriving if I was Hall and known that that player is there. Now, I'm not going to take anything away from Grealish, but Jack Grealish irritates the hell out of me these days because <laughs> all he ever seems to do is go back and give the ball back to the left back. And he, 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 I know he's got the moments where this... I, I could imagine being a strike in the box. Wait, is he going to cross it? No, he's going to go back to the left back. Is he going to cross it? No, he's going to go into Rodri. This guy, uh, we don't, you're gonna, you know he's going to create you chances. He's going to take defenders left and right. And you've got to be ready for the opportunity inside the box. And like you say, any player that gets me on the edge of my seat to watch or, or standing up, even when I'm just watching on the TV, this guy is the player and he's the real deal. And I'm chuffed a bit, so obviously, with what um, Julian just said there with his defensive units and his work rate there. Again, that, that is massive kudos to Pep Guardiola and the way that he's working for the team. Um, and obviously, Julian's done his homework there because that is a, a great one to throw into the mix just to show how effective he is with and without the ball. I hope so, mate. He knows French football inside out. I mean, I'd hope he's done his homework. Seriously, Bridgie, come on. Someone, uh, look, someone has to work here anyway. You know, someone has to do the work. Yeah, no, not just turn up like you, Bridgie. Anyway, like I, I, the thing I want to say is, I want to add to that. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, when I think of Doku right now, it reminds me of what Raheem Sterling was like when he first arrived at the club at yeah. Manchester City and maybe that fine tuning a little bit. And, and like you're saying, Julian, Doku's probably been refined a little bit more and a little bit quicker um, in terms of changing his game a little bit. But the end product is the one I, I probably, you know, Sterling used to do the same thing inside, outside, take teams on, take yeah. players on and scare the living daylights out of them. And that's obviously what Doku does very, very well. Let's move on to Bridgie, your favorite subject Spurs. They've lost three games in a row now. I mean, like, <laughs> Is it crisis already? Is it crisis already, Swartzy? It was a crisis against Chelsea when we played that high line against Chelsea. Uh, I respect what Andrew's going to do. You know what I mean? We, we've seen him over the years. We know exactly what he's, he's about. And he's, what he's done, he's brought a, a belief to Tottenham Hotspur fans, to the, to the players that are there. There's no doubt about it with the, with the wins that he's done and the football he's brought. You know, Ange Ball and anybody that gets a song of Ro Robbie Williams sung about them, you know they're doing good things. However, that game when there was the two red cards, the injury nightmare um, that you saw unfold, I was looking at it thinking, wow, the next few matches are going to be very, very tough. And then the next few matches now after the back of three defeats are going to be even tough because you've got Manchester City in there and you've got Newcastle United as well. So uh, it's a big, big test for Ange Postacoglu. Will he go away from what he believes in? No, he will keep playing his football. Um, I just feel that the the one that the player that has changed the whole dynamics of Tottenham under Ange has been Madison. You talk about anybody else you want at Tottenham Hotspur, Madison has been the key to the success for this for this team. Um, when when they play out with Ange Ball, he's defence in the defensive units, and when they're in the attack, and his his key passes and the stats that he's been shown for the um, the assist that Madison has been getting is just phenomenal. So he has been a huge huge loss. And it was always going to be tough when you lose your two centre-halves. So this is a big challenge for Ange over the next coming weeks. Is it going to affect him? No, because the fans have seen what it's all about. The club have seen what he's all about. And um, I think when Ange has a full squad to pick from, then there's no problem whatsoever with the way Ange is playing. The problem you've got is, you mentioned Madison, obviously he's a huge loss, right? But I think yeah. the two centre-halves, Romero and Van der Ven, 
are equally, if not yeah. more of a loss because of that stability and the way that Ange wants to play. I mean, the, look, the list goes on. Pursuement being out as well, being suspended is a, is a, is a, or was a big loss. Benton core coming back, getting injured again. So that injury list keeps getting bigger and bigger. Julian, that's yeah. the problem, right? So Ange is so determined, and I spoke to him last week. He will not go offline. He will stick to his yeah. philosophy and his beliefs, even with the lesser players. I mean, Hill played... Lo Celso, I think, started only his second game or something in two seasons for Spurs. I forgot he was even there, Swartie, to yeah. be fair. That's how much he's played. Yeah, you're, no, you're right. Of course, it's not helping when you think that you've started the season with eight wins and two draws in 10 league matches, which was incredible, and now you've lost three in a row. Uh, you know, some, some tough games, I guess. Uh, this one against Villa, although Villa away from home were not very good this season. But they are, they are a good team. Wolves away where City lost too, for example, where you were, where you had the lead very early on and then maybe you were too conservative and, and, and dropped deeper and deeper and, and spent too much time defending maybe. And the Chelsea game, like, like Bridget was saying, I was not happy with the high line at nine against 11. I'm sorry. I know Angel's great belief and those principles are in place and, and I'm all for that. But at nine against 11, there's, there's a thin line between, between suicidal methods in a way and what you believe in really. I mean, you know, this is true. Um, the, the big test come now because, of course, Bridget said City away the next game, then West Ham at home, then Newcastle. That's going to be tough. Uh, and, and I don't know if you, do you keep Emerson Royal as centre-back or do you bring back Eric Dyer? What was that message that you sent to Dyer by leaving him on the bench for the game against Villa? Was he a case of, of pace? I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Does that Kulusevski, Hill, Brennan Johnson, Son kind of work? I, I think the content of the game on Sunday was good. I mean, they expected goals is high. They, they, they had a lot of chances, but they were also caught offside a lot. That's what Aston Villa do. Their offside trap is very good, very efficient. So I, I still think there's, a, there's still some positives in there, but three defeats in a row and Ange will have to, to maybe make the right adjustment to go away at City because you don't want to go there and get a battering and have a four defeat in a row on the back of a battering. I mean, it's a mental season when you think, Ange, was it, was it three manager of the months he, he won back-to-back? Yeah. And they normally yeah. get the managerial curse come. They say, if you win it, the managerial curse comes. Well, no, Ange, Ange proved that it didn't. But I'll tell you what, it's come back to Horton because after winning three in a row, he couldn't. He could be looking at six defeats in a blooming month and a half if he goes on and not win against the teams that you've mentioned there, Julian. And like yeah. I say, I just think it was that Chelsea game. I just saw Ange's whole castle just start to crumble in that one game because of the the, the major injuries. Forget forget about the yellow, the, the red cards. You're going to lose players for a few games. It's the injuries that are building up now. Whether that is to do, if you remember when Jurgen Klopp first took over from uh, Liverpool many years ago, the first 10 weeks of his um, tenure was, I think they had nine to 10 injuries in the first two or three weeks because of the intensity loads and training that went up through the roof. We know what Andrew's training is like, uh, Swarty, what he expects, what he demands. Um, so whether that's got anything to do with or whether this has just been a freak accident um, that the lads are just going down. So it remains to be seen um, how they go. But I, I'm hoping he can, like, we, it's a test for him. It's a test for the team. The fans have seen what, what's in there. And I'm hoping that he can he can get out of this and, and go on to have a, a good, good season. Not just for Tottenham, but for Ange because um, of, of what he's done. If you're looking at those fixtures that are coming up, if he were to lose, say, two out of those next three fixtures, has he built up enough credit? 
with everything. So points on the board, of course. I don't. I'm not. I'm not bothered about or, or concerned about Spurs being dragged down any further, like as in relegation fight or anything like that. Let's not even go there. But in terms oh, of on, the it's... way he's changed football, no, but the way he's changed the football and the feeling around the club, surely he's built up enough credit and. We shouldn't be worried about about his about his position at the club, right, Jules? No, no, definitely not. And this is a process as well. Let's not forget that he's only been there four months, or like, like, let's say five months. You know, with the, by the time he arrived, the preseason and everything. So this is a new process. I think even for him, for him, it's probably new to lose so many players through injuries and suspension to have to almost reinvent the team every single time. You make a mistake when when you win. It's no problem. It's no problem. You can keep the same team like he does. He did for most of those ten games. It's when you start losing, when you start not having the the key players like Bridget was mentioning, not Madison. So what do you do? I was, for example, very surprised against Wolves that he didn't put Lo Celso in for Madison. Keep the same formation. Just put it's kind of similar players in terms of play playmaking qualities. Instead, he put Hoiberg. So you had a midfield with Bisuma, Hoiberg, and Saar, which is a strong, very solid defensive mind in midfield, but not in terms of creativity. And guess what? They lack creativity alone in that game. And yes, they took the lead very early, but after that, it was more about defending that lead than trying to score another goal. And, and they got done and they lost 2-1. So, so it's normal, I think, that he needs, that, that, that there will be times where he needs to, to work out things and things about things, about things differently, I guess. But yeah, no, he's got enough credit. And again, this is a process. This is the beginning of what looks like a very exciting, positive process. Jules, I've got to say that that analogy, that analysis there with Madison, he's in he, the Celso, mate. That's like comparing Belgian chocolate truffles in Madison to like a Milky Bar with Celso. You get, <laughs> mate, they're, they're, not, they're not on the not same, the same level. level. <laughs> but you see what I mean? I think, I think in terms, he, he clearly over, overthought yeah. the fact that we go at Wolves. What, you know, what should I do? I think maybe just dropping Lo Celso there. And just asking him to, to create, he has that volume of play as well, I think was maybe a bit surprising. Um, there's not been a manager sacked uh, in the Premier League so far this season. Why do you think that's the case, Bridgie? Uh, oh, great question, Sporty. I, th I think it's got something to do with the fact that last season, Nottingham Forest stuck by their man and managed to get the job done and got through it. And they saw the the turmoil that went on at Leeds United when they went through four different managers and how that didn't have an impact and success there. So I think now what, you, what you're finding that a lot of teams are going to give the managers a bit more time and the benefit of the doubt to try and get the job done. Um, I think O'Neill was at Bournemouth when he got the job done, they stuck by him. And then obviously he got, he got done at the, at the, the wrong time. Um, Cooper was the man at Forest, so the teams that have, have have showed a lot more faith in their managers seem to get the job done last season. So, the the only people or personnel that I can see, I'm I'm very surprised that nobody has gone at this time because I think there was five at this point last season had gone or something like that. Um, what was it? Was that th th three or four or five had gone? I can't believe it. The only ones that I can see that maybe if anybody was going to get the sack this season. And I know that the fans are not happy at all with what they are saying. Is is uh, obviously my mate um, Paul Heckingbottom at Sheffield United. I, whereas there's other teams that I've seen uh, with Edwards getting the job done at Leicester, getting their first, uh, uh, Luton Town, sorry, getting their first win in the Premier League history. I think that's massive for them. That showed that they've stuck by him. Um, Everton with Dyche, obviously, what's going on there with a ten point deduction. 
he's shown that he can turn things around there and had a great season. So you know, there's in Burnley, Vincent Company. That's that's another one that's in the in there, but. I, I don't know. Jules, what's your take on, on Vincent Company and any of them down the bottom end? Because I'm only thinking that Hecking bottom for me would be yeah. the one realistically at this moment in time. Yeah, I agree with you, Bridgie. I mean, with Company, he, he obviously brought them up. They had an amazing season in the Championship last season. So in terms of credit in the bank, I think he's got he's got plenty and you you see what he wants to do and the players are clearly clearly with him in that dressing room. The one I think that was the closest to go was Iraola at Bournemouth because they didn't win the first nine games of the season. Now these three wins in four. So in a way, keeping him was the right thing to do for Bournemouth. But they're still 16th. And, and I think this is, this, is the, this is one that we need to keep an eye on maybe. But yeah, it's, a, it's strange. But if, even if you look at the other leagues in Europe, there actually hasn't been that many casualties in terms of managers. Even in Italy, not too many when usually at this time of the season, they already have had four or five. In France, the same. Even in Italy, we had a Villarreal, but that was a little bit different, I guess, maybe the context. So maybe it's, it's something that this season, people just keep the faith a little bit longer maybe than they used to. What about you, Swartie? Interestingly, Yeah, interestingly, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with one of my old clubs that I would think oh. there are potentially some eyebrows as being lifted. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm just worried, but... Uh, I'm worried about Chelsea, right? And I don't don't know if making a change is the right thing anyway because I don't know if anybody can come in and sort that mess out at the moment in a quick fix. I think it's something that is a process that's going to, like you've mentioned before, I think it's something that's going to have to take a, a sustained period of time to try and get this team to gel together um, because there's no doubt there are some talented players there. But that's not enough, is it? So Chelsea is one. Are you Pochettino. suggesting that Chelsea could be in a relegation battle this season, Mark? Is that what you're trying to get at there? No, I don't <laughs> think they will be. I don't think they will be. But I, I think I think they'll do well to finish in the top half of the table. I, I honestly do. I just feel that. Look, I was at the game against Manchester City. Going forward, I mean, it was a great game. It was an unbelievably entertaining game. But obviously, you can pick it. You can pick it to pieces in terms of defensive errors and the way that they set up and everything else. But to go head to head with a club like Manchester City and the, the stability that they've had and the success they had, that's impressive. But then you go on, you know, you go and lose your next game, um, and you know, you get, you get thumped at Newcastle, which is not a disgrace, but it's the way in which they lost the game. I think that's 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 the worrying bit. For, for me and that moving forward now Pochettino's come out and criticised the players as well publicly that's never a good sign either yeah I agree with you yeah when I when I saw when I did hear yeah. that I was thinking oh the first it's the first time I think in his managerial career I've heard him come out and criticise so that shows how much he's not um, interested in what's going on there with these players at the moment or what they're not giving him back at the moment. So, yeah, that could be a good shout, you know, but I'm going to stick with the the thought that it could be um, Heckenbottom for the Premier League's first second. And I don't like saying that because obviously I grew up with them. Well, next on is the Women's Super League, uh, which was back in action again this weekend on Optus Sport. So here's Narelle and Ash from our Women's Football Rap Show with the rundown. Thanks, Schwartzer. Yeah, well, a couple of good performances from Aussies in the WSL, Ash, but all the talk this week has been on Tony Gustafsson, the Matildas coach, and whether or not he is going to jump ship to Sweden. He's apparently met with the Swedish FA, interested in the national men's team gig, yep. and it's apparent that he's got a second meeting. Yeah, it is. It'll be interesting to see which way this one goes. Like, I, I don't know whether he's applied for the job or whether they've approached him. Either way, he's taken a first meeting, 
said he's still committed to the Matildas job. Got a second meeting apparently coming up. I don't know, if you were him, would you be heading towards that job or would you stay with the Matildas? Well, I feel like for him, the big one obviously was the Women's World Cup and then next up is the Olympics. But his contract is until the Olympics anyway. So he might just be getting his ducks in a row for afterwards. And I guess that process would have to start now with the vacant job at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Like the vacant job's there. You can talk about it. Maybe he can plan for it to be after the Olympics. Got no idea on the details of it, but you know, Tony's previously kept saying that he's interested in doing the Matilda's job whilst looking at other offers elsewhere. You know, he's a bit of a smooth talker. We said that before. And let's see how he, you know, talks his way maybe into a new job or staying committed to his current job. Because the other side of that is he could be, if he wanted to stay, he could potentially try to get a contract extension with Australia. So if he does go, when he does go, how big of a loss do you think he will be? What, what has he done in his tenure at the Matildas. Yeah, I think he's done a pretty good job of rebuilding the squad and sort of bringing in some new players that we really needed to sort of refresh it and keep bringing talent through to keep putting pressure on our already good team. You know, you need more than just a fantastic sort of 14 players. You need a big pool of talent to choose from. And, you know, the start of his tenure was difficult while he was going through that process. Now he's sort of gotten a good team going and they're flying. So the next team, next coach in, if he does leave, you know, he's got a team that's doing well in a country that's really interested in football at the moment and the Matilda's progress. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see if he leaves, who gets it, you know, who the front runner is. I don't know if you have anyone in mind that you'd like to see. Not off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, the one that comes to mind is Tom Samani because I know he's <laughs> apparently still in Australia dabbling here and there, but then I don't know if we want to go back to something you've already had. But I feel like you've got your ear to the ground on these things. Who would you like to see? Oh, look, I'm a big fan of Tom Samani. <laughs> he gave me my first caps as well. But, you know, Joe, Aussie Joe Montemuro, yes. can we get him back here? I forget about him, you know. He's so far away. He's off drinking espresso, enjoying <laughs> his life in Italy. <laughs> well, Schwartzy, you usually get some good answers out of Tony. Surely you can get the goss for us. I don't know what you guys are trying to say um, about me interviewing Tony Gustafsson. Um, info, getting info out of Tony. Geez, that's a, that's a tough one. As we all know, we saw at the Women's World Cup. I think I had to ask him five or six times whether or not Sam Kerr was actually, uh, had actually trained with the team. So I, no idea. I don't think I can go there with this one at the moment. I need to be in the right mental state uh, and place to be able to ask him those questions. So let's just move right on now. News over the weekend is that Paddy Norbo has lost his job at Troyes. Um, Julian, we're not really surprised, are we? No, we're not. Schwartz, unfortunately for him, uh, two wins only this season in, in 15 games. They 17th in the table, so the, 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 in the first position in the bottom four that will go down. So relegation places, I think they won one in 13 in the last 13. The football was not good. For a team that came back straight, you know, came down from, from Ligue 1, of course, from the top flight, where he had a Tory time last season, kept his place with the ambition, obviously, to go back up. It's just not, it's not good enough. So, uh, so I think the City group has had enough uh, at that time. Uh, and not that it's an emergency because there's still plenty of games to be played in Ligue 2. However, the, the teams were clearly not going in the right direction. So they thought it's better to end it now. La Liga this weekend uh, was full of... I would say a little bit, little surprises, but Phil Kittremelides, who isn't on the podcast this week, did leave us the voice note about Barcelona faltering at his beloved Rayo, even though I thought that was a bit of a surprise, but apparently not. 
So if I'm being cheeky, I can actually say that a 1-1 draw away at Rio is a brilliant result for Barca because it's better than what they've managed the last two years because they've lost on the previous two visits uh, to Vallecas and Rio have actually become Barca's bogey team. Five matches now, five games without beating Rio. It's a tremendous run for Rio and really quite a strange one for, for Barca. Um, it was a, a game in which Rio were really, really superior in the first half and Barca came back into it a little bit in the in the second half. But it's not the first time we've seen Barca completely outplayed in first halves of matches. There's an incredible statistic that they've um, picked up more points in the last 15 minutes of matches than any other team in Europe. So they've got the spirit to keep going and fighting and pick up points at the end. But they need to start games a lot, lot better because they were absolutely steamrolled by the mighty Rio in the in the first half. And uh, yeah, a point apiece, possibly a fair result, but it's a, it's another disappointing, another disappointing result for Barca. So I actually didn't realise that uh, Rayo had such a strong or such a really good uh, form at home against Barcelona. And having, having seen the highlights from the game last night, not watching the whole game, I admit it. I mean, Rayo first half were outstanding, like Phil was saying, uh, Jules. Yeah, they were good. I mean, they're a lovely team to watch. The results are not always there. But if you look at the game against Real Madrid, they drew nil-nil at the Bernabeu as well. They just, so they just played Real Madrid, Girona, who are... They could go back top on Monday night. We record this on Monday morning. If they be Athletic, Athletic Club de Bilbao and then Barca. So Real Madrid, Girona, Barca, the top three, top four with Athletic, uh, with Atletico Madrid. So three tough, tough games. And for them to draw up Real Madrid to then came within what 10 minutes or so to beat Barcelona. And then in between they lost to Girona. They took the lead. And then after that considered two goals. It shows they, they're a good little team. They, they, they play well. They've got some really good players like Easy. They they move the ball well. They're also very aggressive. They, they they're very strong defensively. So it was never going to be an easy game. However, we should also highlight the the, the limits right now for this Barca team. The difficulties that they have. They're not playing well. They're not creating enough chances. They're not scoring enough. And and it was a in a way uh, they snatched that draw towards the end where I'm not even sure they deserved it. To be fair, are Barcelona in trouble, Bridgie? Is Javi in, in trouble? Oh, well, I don't think so, Swarty, because what the four points, four points off top with Real Madrid, right? There's still a hell of a long season to go, and the players at Barca have got at their disposal. They could find themselves pulling themselves out of this, no problem whatsoever. However, I feel that this Real Madrid team, especially when we're going to chat about them, hopefully next, because one man that I get really excited about is Bellingham. Is it is it too early to say that they're, they're out of the title race when they're that close to, uh, behind? I don't know, mate. I, I would never write Barcelona off. I don't want to because I think that there is a lot more to come from them this season. And like I say, it's just, I, I want to see that race between them top two on again um, because it makes it so exciting. Atletico Madrid have got a big one coming up against Barca very soon as well. So that'll be an interesting one. I think if Atletico can get, that, get a, a win over Barcelona then, you might be asking me the same question a couple of weeks, Swartzy. If there were six points away from Real Madrid this early on the season, I may say it is over. But not at this moment in time, no. But they're definitely in a bit of turmoil. But I would, what, I, what I loved from this weekend is Phil's voice note, obviously, talking about how good Real are and how, how, how the result in the, the bogey team for Barcelona. I was following his Instagram story 
And it was like seeing a kid in the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. <laughs> he was just so animated and so excited. And that's him getting excited of his team drawing a game. So imagine what he'd be like if they actually won a game against Barcelona. Uh, I want to see him in all his glory um, on the podcast once again when we get that luxury over the next couple of seasons. So we'll, we'll see. But he was, it was good to see him. And um, any team that can take Barca, like you say, play them at their own game, very impressive. It literally was a game of two halves. Um, Rayo absolutely dominating in the first half. Barcelona came back in yeah. at the second half. Ped, Pedri missed two big chances. Torres, another big chance before Lewandowski made it 1-1. But if you have not seen Unai Lopez's goal, it was an absolute screamer from about 35 yards out with the outside of his foot as the ball kind of got half cleared. It was absolutely brilliant goal. Um, let's move on to Cardiz, my team, against Real Madrid. It's not quite going so well for Cardiz, but I didn't expect much. Look, we just hope they stay uh, in La Liga this season. We talked about Ganacho's goal earlier on. Rodri's goal, first goal for Real Madrid, was a pretty good goal, wasn't it, Jules? It was amazing, yeah. And I, what I loved about Rodrigo, it was he was his game. He was issued scored two and assisted the one for Bellingham. But that with Vinicius being injured probably until the end of January, beginning of February now. Rodrigo, who usually plays on the right hand side, basically usually play where where Vinicius doesn't play. This time, he had the Vinicius position. And from him to be able to come inside from the left onto his right foot, like we saw on the two goals, really, the two goals that he scored, I think was great. And of course, as soon as Vinicius comes back, Vinicius is going to go to his favourite position and Rodrigo will have to be again on the right, a bit more central, all of that. But, <clears throat> but when, we needed, when Real Madrid needed him the most, he, he was there. He, he responded so well because, okay, it's only Cadiz. No offense to your team, Schwartzy, but, <laughs> but, but Rodrigo was outstanding, really outstanding, unstoppable at times. Uh, Bridgie, I'll, I'll set you up nicely for this. Jude Bellingham, 11 goals in 12 league games. I mean, that's up there with Harlan statistics, let's be honest. Uh, he scored 14 goals in 15 games in all comps for Madrid. So he's actually done better than Cristiano Ronaldo did when he first joined Real Madrid. So is he... Better than Cristiano Ronaldo, Bridgie. <laughs> Listen, right. Jules has, Jules has only been on this a couple of times, right? Jules, in Optus Sport, they have a thing because of the size of my nostrils, they call it nostril dormus, right? I come out with these, these big, big <laughs> quotes, all right, every now and again. I claim that Newcastle United would make it in the Champions League. They'd finished top four in the Premier League. Swartie laughed at me. We got in there, all right? Yeah. I said I came out with another few over the times that haven't gone to plan. But I did actually say at the start of the season, Jude Bellingham would be one of the best signings, if not the best signing in world football, all right? So that's why Swartie's team is up for this. And Swartie, mate, anybody that can outscore Ronaldo, like 14 goals in 15 games. Ronaldo had 13. And the great man, Di Stefano, had 13 after 15 games. Jude Bellingham is up there already with the names that have gone down in folklore history with La Liga and Real Madrid. So that just shows the impact. Now, Real Madrid signed this guy not to be a goal scorer. They've actually signed this guy as a midfielder, box to box, get the odd goal, makes assists, but is, it can break down play defensively as well. So I think what they've realised now... The money that they've paid, they're going, hang on a minute, we've actually got a goal scorer here that is winning games and getting very, very important goals for them as well. Not only in the league, but in the Champions League as well. So, man, what a finding. And I stick by my comments early on in the start of the season for this podcast. The, he is the best signing that you will see this season. And I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that he's found a whole new niche um, to his game. He's scoring the goals. And what he's done, he's gone over there, he's embraced it. He's learned the language. 
Um, he's getting himself settled in very, very nicely. And it's not easy to do because my friend uh, for Leeds United, Jonathan Woodgate, who was one of the greatest defenders of all time, um, that was struck down by injuries. It, it didn't go according to plan with him with his red cards. He found it hard to settle in over there. David Beckham settled in well. And again, Michael Owen did did quite well, but couldn't quite get a grip with it. So Jude Bellingham, what he is doing, mate, this is absolutely spectacular. And I'm chuffed a bit because he is a, a class act off the field as well. He's a very mature young man. Jules, if you know Bridgie, right, this is like up there when he talks about Harry Kane. I mean, we haven't even gone with Harry Kane, right, and what he's doing in Germany. Can you imagine? Like, this will be another level altogether. Um, I mean, it's just embarrassing sometimes. I have to apologise for Bridgie. Uh, but Jules, is is he... I mean, can he continue this run? I mean, it's phenomenal what he's doing. He's changed from that, like Bridgie mentioned, that midfield, deeper holding midfield yeah. player, breaking up play to an advanced play, uh, position, being at number 10 or number nine, and mostly because of injury, right? He's been forced to play in that position. I, I, firstly, I want to ask you, are you surprised at how well he's done in that position and can he continue it? Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised. I knew he would do well, but not that well, I won't lie. Uh, I did Not like Bridgie, I didn't see this one coming. Uh, <clears throat> when Carlo Ancelotti mentioned the diamond midfield and the fact that Jude would play as that 10, so the top of the diamond, in preseason, I was like, okay, yeah, I, w- I want to see this because, uh, because we know he's good at everything. So if you said to him, listen, you don't have actually to defend as much as maybe you used to before at Dortmund or... And you can focus on the last third of the pitch a bit more because you also know that behind you, Cruz is going to pass the ball or Valverde is going to pass the ball. So you can just focus on making those runs into the box, be intelligent like you always are. But if you told me that he would, at times, score those goals like a real number nine, like a bridging number nine, I would have said never. I can see the number 10 in him, for sure, but the number nine in him, that kind of quality finish of being at the right place at the right time all the time, never. Yeah. So on that, he's really surprised me. Because the 10, you could see that in him, no doubt. But the 9 in him, I don't think like that. You know, some of the goals, I remember the Santa Vigo was, I was in Spain on holiday. For him to win the game at that, it was the 81st or 82nd minute. By just a, like a proper number 9 finish it was, was just, wow, okay. And the guy is so intelligent that he grasps that role so quickly that I find it completely amazing. Is it too soon to be talking about Ballon d'Or? For the, like, I know Haaland's going to be up there for the Ballon d'Or next, no. next season. Bellingham's going to be in there. Mbappe, how, how's that? Is he still in contention, Jules, from your connections with PSG? Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah you're right. I, th- I think we're one of, the, one of them three. Maybe Vinicius as well, if... If when he comes back, he finishes the season strongly, and then it would a lot of it would be down to the Euros, of course. If Jude yeah. can shine with England, can take that England team all the way, uh, and if if England and Jude win it, that means that Kylian doesn't win it with France, for example. Haaland is not going to make it, which I think is yeah. to the detriment of him for the Ballon d'Or. But if Vinicius wins the Copa America with Brazil, that that will play for him. But but yeah, no, Jude, Haaland, and, and Mbappe and Vinicius, I guess, right now are the four leading contenders for the next uh, Ballon d'Or. Yeah. I can't believe Bridgie stayed quiet on that one. You've changed, Bridgie, because the fact is that how have you not mentioned Harry Kane? I mean, the scoring record that he's and had. Kane, of how, course, oh, right. here we go. Now you're backtracking. Harry Kane and how well he's doing. Euros coming out with England. Bayern Munich should hope, well, they should win the league. It's going to be tight. Leverkusen have been amazing. Then also England at the Euros, right? So, Bridgie, why, why are you even just smiling? Why are you not even saying anything? Because I've got it's to... It's all about Jude now. I've got, to play him, I've got to play Harry down because what it is, he's my trump card. He's the one that's coming out and he's going to be... <laughs> of, course, of course, Harry Kane's going to win it. <laughs> and you know how much he loves, <laughs> you know how much he loves Bridgie as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course he does. Uh, who? Um, a couple of hours' time of recording. Girona's playing at home against Athletic Bilbao. If Girona win, they go back to the top of La Liga um, and they'll be two points clear of Real Madrid, uh, which would be phenomenal. And that would make them six points ahead of Barcelona. And we always refer back to Barcelona as like almost the benchmark. If you're that many points ahead of Barcelona, you're fine. The other game I want to go on to, just a brief mention, Real Sociedad beat Sevilla 2-1 yesterday. Um, two players were sent off for Seville, Jesus Navas. And who else? Who was the second? Sergio Ramos, of course. <laughs> 29th red card of his Incredible. career. That is insane. I mean, I don't. I didn't pick up that many cards in my career. Bridgie certainly didn't even play enough games to pick up that many cards. That is crazy, right? Is he go down as the hardest, most like I don't know, reckless centre half? I think outside of Australia, when we've got our very own Kevin Muscat, Muskie got a lot of red cards in his time. Yeah, but Jules, you take it away with what Ramos is about. Yeah, I think 29. I mean, Pep, of course, who used to play with him at Real Madrid and now still plays at Porto uh, at the age of 41, I think. Uh, it's probably right up there with the, like some of the toughest, but 29 red cards. <laughs> that, I know it's a long career for Sergio Ramos because he started at, what, seven, as a 17-year-old for Sevilla or something. But uh, 29 but still, red cards. I mean, wow. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And just just shortly, very quickly, uh, Villarreal won on Sunday against Osasuna 3-1. It was a hat-trick for José Luis Morales, El Comandante Morales, who's 36 years old. If you haven't seen the goals, one of them, especially his first touch, is just incredible. And then at 36, he runs the half of the page to go and finish one-on-one with the keeper. It's amazing. So I just wanted to say... Well, Comandante Morales, what an amazing performance it was this week. I've just been working out there with Ramos's red cards. Let's say he got three three match suspensions for each of them red cards. It would be two or three games. He's probably been suspended more, missed more matches than I actually played in my career. That's frightening, by the way. <laughs> nearly, yeah, nearly. Yeah. I was just short of ninety games, right? So yeah, just top so man, I'm, I'm, I'm close to that. He got three games. <laughs> Three games. Mind you, it depends. If it wasn't Violet, it wouldn't be three games. It could be one. So, yeah, that's well, that's, yeah. that's an extreme case. If every one of those 29 were for Violent... Um, well, I was just teeing uh, you up to have a go at a Swatsy. There you go. Yeah, no, that was interesting, <laughs> Bridgie. Um, that's not bad from you, actually, for a change, because normally I'm teeing you up. Well, guys, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much, Bridgie and Jules, for joining us. Um, a reminder that every game in the Premier League, La Liga and Women's Super League are all live and exclusive on Optus Sport. Thanks for your company on the Optusport Football Podcast. See you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. 
Code Program.